Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. One of the inaugural Max Richburn Poetry Prize, North American Stadiums is an assured debut about grace, the places we search for it, and the disjunction between what we seek and where we arrive. It is a collection at once resolutely unsentimental, yet deeply tender, illuminating the historical forces that shape the places we inhabit and how those places in turn shape us. Grady Chambers was born and raised in Chicago. He was a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University, attended the MFA program at Syracuse University and has received fellowships from the Norman Mailer Center and the New York State Summer Writers Institute. His writing has appeared in Diode Poetry, Forklift, Ohio, Ninth Letter, New Ohio Review, and elsewhere. He currently lives in Philadelphia. North American Stadiums is his first book of poems. Also joining us this evening is Elizabeth Metzger for her collection, Spirit Papers. Grieving for the future with a spiritual clarity characterized by ritual and doubt, Metzger's lines are chameleons to every feeling. In the interminable window of expecting the unexpected, the poems ultimately materialize the very events they wish to ward off. Spirit Papers chases mortality with equal parts disbelief and love. Elizabeth Metzger is the poetry editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books Quarterly Journal. Her poetry has re recently appeared or is forthcoming in The New Yorker, Poem a Day on Poets.org, Poetry Magazine, and The Nation. Her essays and reviews appear in PN Review, The Southwest Review, and Boston Review. Her debut collection, The Spirit Papers, won the 2016 Juniper Prize and was published by University of Massachusetts Press in 2017. She earned her MFA at Columbia University and currently lives in Los Angeles. We're thrilled to have them with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for coming. Um, Dylan, thank you for that introduction. I have one amendment, which is that um, this book is, in fact, deeply sentimental. Um, but I'm trying to weed that out. Um, but the, the fact of this book's existence um, owes so much to so many people. Um, and first to um, Max Ritvo, whose um, writing and spirit um, reached so many people and continues to um, in his in his writing, which um, continues to to be put out into the world. Um, so I really I do owe the fact of this book's existence to to Max and that he touched so many people, and then of course to Max's family for dreaming up this prize um, and to the amazing Milkweed Editions um, for making that a reality. Um, so. The fact that, that this is a physical object really owes so much to, to so many, and I'm really grateful to be here and to be um, sharing the stage with Elizabeth Metzger, um, who's a great friend of Max, and it uh, is fortuitous that, that he uh, brought us together. So thanks for coming out. Um, so this was published a couple months ago um, in June. I'm going to um, start by reading some poems from the book and then some others. Um, the, the book starts, um, even before the actual section of the book, with um, sort of a small prayer, um, explaining the resurrection in simple words. A blessing can be the act of invoking divine protection or a favor or gift bestowed by God, and I don't know how to define mercy, but the field is lit like the heart of the night, gnats flitting above the cross-hatched grass, Huge shadows of the ball players in stadium light, whistling in signals from the outfield. The wind lifts and settles our shirts against our skin, and you ask after my day. There have been pinwheels spinning on a rain-soaked lawn, pigeons cooing and nesting in the gutters. I'd pressed my back to the dark, damp wood of the trunk. Yellow flowers fell on me. Syracuse, October. 
Fuck Savannah's hot autumns. Fuck handsome Alabama. Fuck the deep south alcoholics standing in flannel in the summer sun. I drove north. I took Green Road to Hubbardsville and saw October and August. Booted men hosing grit off the park pool's bottom. Crisp leaves lifted like the remnants of summer's collective memory. I drove outer into it, listening to the Liverpool choir's mournful version of the national anthem, the tuning forks of eastern townships bringing a Stravinsky more film score than symphony. I wanted the blaze of the unmuffled trumpet, the spin song of the laundromat, a little of the stormfront's threnody in the streeted leaves, in the blooms of glass from kids breaking fluorescent light tubes in the spent vocabulary of an asphalt parking lot. I wanted October, lace trim of a black dress slumped on the floor of my birthday, cold skin and laughter, little burn on the leaves, little love declaration, little dull light in the white sky. This, this next poem is called um, Dispatch Pittsburgh. I had the unusual experience a little while ago um, of getting booed at a poetry reading. Um, and interestingly, it was before I'd even started reading poems. Um, so I was, in, I was in Baltimore reading to a bunch of high school boys um, who were all Baltimore Ravens fans. And my mistake was reading this poem and explaining to them the origins of the poem, which is that when I was a little kid, I really loved watching, I, I mean, I love watching football and I still do, but I loved watching games broadcast from Pittsburgh in particular. And not because I was a Steelers fan, but because I loved the moment when they cut from the commercials um, back to the stadium and they would show overhead shots of the city um, and the city's rivers. So when I began this poem, I knew I wanted to end a poem at uh, what used to be Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh and is now Heinz Field. Um, and along the way, I ended up researching a lot of the history of the city, which made its way into this poem. So. Uh, this is Dispatch Pittsburgh. Oh. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's was, that was good. It's 1770, year 1946 or 2018, in Iron City, Steel City, city of coal smoke and bridges, the tongue twisting Monongahela, shifting the narrative. There was Indian Dominion over the upper Ohio Valley, Sawkunk and Logstown, outposts of the Iroquois and Shawnee. There was a vision and a battle, vicious histories. The red oval of my mouth as I floated over tribal chiefs thanking blankets from the Europeans, a scream that no one heard. I sleep on couches and turn my body to face the cushions and keep my shoes laced and gaping on the floorboards below me. So when I wake, I step straight into daylight in the city of 500 bridges and cross number 76 into 1812 to watch the smokestacks and forges spring up on the flatlands, a city formed by warfare. They called it the Westward Portal until destiny manifested itself, and it became the smoky city, the typhoid capital, blooms forming from the hot rolling of ingot stock, iron ore crushed in the center plants, the deposits roiling the rivers to 130 degrees. In divine time, I stood with Carnegie on the gilded balcony of his east side mansion. We toasted Clinton and Soho, whose coke fire furnaces brought iron smelting to the region and I danced at the Battery Ball with Rockefeller's daughter. We cakewalked into a two-step, polkaed into a waltz, and I left her mid-mazurka to blitz the buffet table. I came back in 65 years to find her a skeleton frozen in a permanent twirl, her pearls glowing brightly in the ballroom lights, and I laughed at the champagne still dripping from her ribcage. But there was no time to waste. It was 1944, there was a war on, so I snatched the pearls from her neck and loaded them into my Colt Commando and marched out into the arsenal of democracy. I high-stepped to the Navy yards where tan sailors leaned out of the portholes while their girls knelt with bent necks. It looked like praying, and I cheered the men's departure while their sisters wept into my shoulders, and I jeweled the night sky with my gunshots. Then I walked across the Liberty Bridge and felt the factories chip and crumble behind me. And when I reached the other side, it was 1973, my gun had rusted, and I slid across beds of shattered glass, chanting white flight, rust belt, brain drain, mercy, and knifed into the bottom of a fountain where the Allegheny joins the Monongahela, 
and I closed my eyes and slept for 40 years. When I woke, I was surrounded by dimes and pennies. It was 2018, just another wartime Sunday. So I shrugged and played the lotto and followed the streams of people to Heinz Field where the Steelers lined up to play the Chiefs. And I scalped tickets in the bright light of the winter parking lot. And I told anyone who would listen, they used to call this city hell with the lid off. And the crowds moved around me. I hovered above them. And everyone wore yellow sweatshirts. And the arms were stitched with black hearts and stars. So today had the potential to be a really awful day. Um, when I left, when Jessica and I left uh, our apartment this morning, uh, the Judiciary Committee was planning on uh, continuing their vote this afternoon. And not only that, but then we got out on the street and saw a woman sprint down her staircase with pure terror on her face calling for Jason. So we ran across the street and we're like, what's up? And she's like, uh, I like Jason ran away. And so it turns out Jason is actually named Raisin, and Raisin is an elderly dog. Um, so we were like, <laughs> we, we got roped in to searching the neighborhood for Raisin, but I, at the time, I still thought it was Jason. So I was asking everyone, like, look for this dog named Jason. Um, but as it turned out, um, Raisin was, uh, was safe in her yard. Um, which was the first good news of the day. And then I returned home to find that there's going to be an FBI investigation. So, damn good day. And now you're all here. So, uh, that's cool. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little, <laughs> a little bit and read um, a poem called Evening. But now the poems are going to get depressing. So, um, Evening. Now I take the first set. This is my favorite hour, long and brief, when the city picks up steam, the sky darkens, the lights of skyscrapers come on like embers, everyone in motion, traveling home. There are certain evenings it's almost impossible to imagine where a single person will lie down to sleep, all that will have to happen for them to get there. I might be on a bus or watching a theater empty. I try to imagine their front doors, their hallways, the beds in which they sleep. I think of their bodies in those last paces, giving in or given willingly. I remember names tonight, childhood, the gymnasium's hardwood floor, Nick Brunel, skinny and handsome, and what happened to him. Evening descends, the light recedes from the city like a tide. One man's sleep seems lonely where another's doesn't. Those kids from school, we used to crawl across each other's bodies like ants in love. When the whistle blew, we'd divvy up like tribes, parsing in the teams by the colors of our shirts. Blues are lights, grays is dark, the voices of children, not making sense, but doing so perfectly. Some evenings, I pick a single person passing by, and in my mind, I follow them home. I want their life in this manner to become more real to me like a handprint and paint on the schoolroom wall, or time, or the memory of the nurse's gloved hands pressing on my shoulders, the scissors whisper in my ears, the children waiting in the hallway, how I close my eyes while she cut my hair. Dragons. I was having trouble sleeping. To try, I drank. When I slept, I sweated, woke in early darkness, stumbled up to piss. Back in bed, I remembered things. A Christmas party I went to as a boy, the breath of the adults, the children's hands taken in the bigger hands, our endurance as our faces were touched, our hair touched, rearranged. I walked all day to exhaust myself. Buses were long insects turning on the Broadway. In this way, the winter passed, but it didn't pass. I was living in the north, and the sky was a stone, blank and frozen. At night, it lightened, pink, fed by the glow from the town. By morning, it returned, whiter, lower. Every 26 days, I flew south for a weekend with my sister. 
Each time I appeared, she seemed in some distress. Her brown hair, once thick, was thinning. The drain was clogged, and I tended to her before returning. Back in my rooms, I opened the cabinet. I closed it. I thought, if I could wait till 8 p.m., if I had a half glass of water in between, the second and third drink, the fifth and the sixth, I lay awake. I thought of distant ships flinching toward each other on the green screen of a ship's radar, a mass at the bottom to represent land. There was a dragon in the book my father read to me when I was young. It flew over cities. Its nails were claws. Its head was noble, broad and scaled. It slept with its face tucked beneath its wing in the rear of its cave, chained. It was protecting something, or had been forced to. Through the wall, my neighbor moaned in a way I envied, to be so filled. I got up and poured. The torches of planes passed through the sky. Time passed as slow as a hare trying to grow through skin. Snow fell. Time passed fast as that same hare cut by a razor. In February, I went south, fixed blinds to her windows, cleaned her rugs. She seemed better and worse. She slept, but her hair had grown sparser, the dark strands stark against her pale scalp. What ailed her was inexplicable. I thought of how a dog used to gnaw its tail till it bled. I stood by the window until the windows opposite became slim lit bars. She toppled a plate as I packed to leave. We circled the date of my next visit. It became important to me whether the dragon was good. Who were the women who came to visit it in their dresses, with their scepters? What was it guarding? I couldn't remember. Was the dragon kind? Would it hurt just to hurt? Its tail could sweep men into a moat at a flick. When it breathed, something burned. Its whole body seemed a weapon. There was a place between the sixth and eighth drink where everything diminished, the body inside but at a distance from the wall of the shell but still encased in the thin, lucid membrane. Needles, tubes, the soul's liquid filling up a glass. She'd called to say they'd drained a cyst. And I stood in my living room as I'd once stood as a child on the shore, in the tide, the draining sand sinking my feet deeper, my arms out for balance. At the terminal I arrived at inner city, the moving walkway was always broken. A display of miniature weather balloons in festive colors adorned the air near the ceiling in all seasons. And because they were there in all seasons, and because the defining features of my visits were the ebb and flow of her condition, and the night spent by the window watching light return to other windows as the day came, the visits over time grew indistinct from one another, like the trick of the one bright silk in the clown's fist becoming many and then becoming one again. The balloons appeared to float. I went back and forth from my sister's door. We grew close. She took an interest in my duffel, and when it became worn, she bought another, and another in anticipation of that one's deteriorating condition. Beside them, in the closet, she made a space for my sweaters. Frost spread across the windows. And when I was having trouble sleeping, to try, I drank. And when I slept, I sweated, woke in darkness, stumbled up to piss. And when I was back in bed, I would remember things. A Christmas party I attended as a boy, the breath of the adults, the sky lowering each morning, the dragon sleeping over its bars of gold. Whoa. <laughs> Heavy, right? Um, <laughs> so this last poem, thank you guys for coming out. Um, it's really cool to read here, um, to read with Elizabeth. Uh, the last poem I'm going to read is a recent one. Um, I wrote it this summer um, at a time when I was paying sort of obsessive attention to the news. Um, and I think sort of a lot of the, the fear and terror um, and dread that many people are feeling right now made, made its way into this. Um, and the only thing to note about the poem is that there are two voices that are speaking. There's me, and then um, there is another voice who I'm in conversation with 
um, references Jay, um, and this poem is for Jessica. The Price of Strawberries. Approaching midsummer, I said, it feels closer to the end. Gauzy clouds, torn veils, like a bride's. They trudged across the sky like ghosts. July's stillness finally broke. I thought of fall. Through the airwaves, language of great consequence flew around, losing sense. We spoke of the humidity, the price of strawberries. When would we stop drinking? Glenn Gould at the piano. Between the sounds of the notes, you could hear him breathe. The first time I heard Moonlight Sonata was in sixth grade, Jay said. I was so filled with sadness at the way people treated me, I pretended to faint. Through the window, the slow build of another memorial to the war, I daydreamed of lobbing Molotov cocktails at the motorcade's heart. I pictured the flutter of Jay's lashes, the care on the faces looming above her as she had pretended to wake. Green days, summer storms, conversation. This sunscreen kills barrier reefs. This brand of broccoli has pesticides. I got older and forgot my body or grew accustomed to it. Today I googled, I'm not an alcoholic, but I can't just stop. Chocolate smeared all across her mouth. Ice cream and sunlight on the museum steps. Dread sad or dreadful sad, we couldn't decide which. There was so much abandon. In August, the vice president arrived. The city shut down. Hordes of women in red cloaks converged on the racket club. Silently, they pushed forward toward City Hall, white candles in their hands, like an intervention's showering of love. If it wasn't real, you wouldn't have believed it. From our windows, in one direction, the wall of falling rain. In the other, twin spires at night, like lanterns lit against a dark field. A morning orca was pushing her dead baby for five days through the ocean. We smoked eights of white rhino through gas masks and basements, laughing as the despots came to power. A pair of torn pants lay slumped on the sidewalk, as if the boy who'd been inside them vanished. Down our block, the whole left torso of a stooping oak was taken off by a passing truck. From our window, we mourned the tree. We thanked it. In the morning, as she slept, I checked her breath against my hand. I gathered the dead brittle petals from the lilies in the kitchen vase. With my head out the bathroom window, I leaned out over the rushing. I unclutched fistfuls out above the traffic. I said, goodbye, dried flowers. Go enjoy the earth again. Thank you very much. tonight this book is stunning and I was trying to think of what words I could could say for it after hearing all of those poems and the only thing I can think to say is that I live in Los Angeles with a sort of strange perspective because I don't know how to drive I grew up in New York <laughs> never learned how to drive and I was emailing with Grady we were talking a lot about our books and just about this event for a while and um, I told him that I have this weird experience of being in Ubers of being in cars all the time as a passenger and just being stuck sort of in this sort of trapped position where you don't get the freedom of driving yourself. But Grady's book has finally allowed me to read in a car. I used to get car sick whenever I would do that. And something about the journey of his poems and going through these different places, I can look out the window and enjoy it more, and I can also read his poems. So maybe that will apply to other books too. I don't know, but it applies to yours. Um, and thank you to Max too, of course, um, for bringing us here. As you said, um, it is really really fateful, I feel like, that we're in this beautiful bookstore. It's my favorite bookstore, um, maybe anywhere, but definitely here in Los Angeles. And um, I used to live around the corner, so being back here now is, is pretty significant. So thank you to everyone for being here. Um, I'm going to read uh, some poems from my book, The Spirit Papers, uh, and then we'll talk about our books. Um, the first poem I'm going to read is called Pretend. It's a, it's a poem for Max. So Max was my best friend. Um, we went to Columbia together. We ended up here in Los Angeles. He ended up here for his last trial, his last treatment. Um, he passed away of cancer in uh, 2016. And, um, and 
I wrote a lot of poems in my book for him, and we worked on our books together, and uh, this poem is one of the last ones I wrote him. Pretend. Two gnomes sit in space and admire how unnoticed they go. Let me play the third gnome. Plant one flower devoid of water, devoid of our one true sun. And if the flower grows, yes, it grows, then the planet is a burden worth passing between us. Quick, quicker, we can make it seem almost like lightness. Honey, your somebody is home. Um, this next poem I'm going to read is actually also, um, it's not for Max, but um, it's one of the first ones that I wrote when we were in workshop together at Columbia and sort of started a process that went on for three years of us writing poems that were in conversation with each other's poems, even if they weren't really about the same thing or for each other. Um, so that's this, this poem's sort of about imagining, um, I don't know, an, an afterlife for survivors. So what would it be like to survive loss if I sort of lived in this moment where I felt like I was about to experience a cascade of losses. And as soon as you experience your first loss, even if there are years before the next one, you sort of live in a world of loss. Um, not to be uplifting or anything, but um, yeah, so this, this is about uh, imagining that before it happened. Courtyard of the most embarrassing god. Had you left me alive, I would have killed a rabbit for my pleasure. Our proportion of skeleton to fur would make me sure at least of being animate. The pelt, dead and bristling, might guard me from death, a city wet with the rain of better places. Rubbing the skin so hard into my skin, it would have been the gentlest thing. It would have been a better brain. My vanishing is a meadow, and I know my kill still moves, more or less disturbed. Every leaf blowing the shell off my deformed, blue-lipped bud. I would work myself into the dirt if I could stay. Okay, I'm going to switch gears and read a poem um, that I wrote for my brother. I love that poem, Dragons, uh, with your sister in there. And, um, this is sort of in conversation. Um, my brother moved away um, when I was, I don't know, in high school. He's six years older, and he moved to Kentucky. And after he moved away for college, something happened where he really transformed. Every time he would come home, we were desperate to find sort of a intimacy, a familiarity again. But we couldn't do it in our old ways. We had to sort of invent a new way of of being together, whether it was a new language or just a new way of walking literally down the street. Um, so this is about that, if I can find it. For my brother in bluegrass, ever since you were placed in the 99th percentile, I've been trying to be exceptional. I made you the father of my dolls. I made you my in case of emergency. When we walked down the street, I was the stranger. You were whatever moved you. Either you were a thoroughbred glistening through clay, or you spoke a language you made up by the minute. Then you drove away to join the normal. Oh, lawyer, let me compose you. Let me leave you in the prodigal field, back between boyhood and the prematurely old. You gave me up for the word lovely. Listen, the North is kicking out at the door for you to be familiar. Um, so. In a similar sort of question of distance and intimacy, I had this experience with myself at some point later in life um, when I was starting to really write seriously and write toward a book where I felt like I had always I'd identified as a poet for a long time and been writing for a long time. But I, um, I met Lucy Brockbroido, a poet who recently passed away as well, and she was extremely important, important to me and to my work. And one, one of the things that happened when I met her was that I realized that for all of my feelings of going to the page and bearing my soul, I really wasn't, I was really withholding a lot. And I, I wasn't deliberate and I don't even know what it was, but this was the poem where I sort of was allowing myself to let something else in. Interior where no one notices. They told me to stay away from the sill, but I raised the pane and slipped one sparrow, black and shivering into my mouth. I kept it there all evening, wetting its wings on my tongue, letting it peck at the vault of my throat. I could taste the color of lava, contagious and bitter, an hour when light goes and the room grows a wall and even wood becomes restless. It wept in the middle of my mouth. It sharpened my breath into little teeth 
for knowing. It was loveless, and I would not have trusted anyone. After, I was thirsty all the time. I'm going to switch gears again and read the one, maybe the one love poem in, in my book. Um, this is for my husband, Dan. Um, actually, this is a poem that I really was not going to put in the book, but Max um, convinced me. And uh, the truth is that it's not really a love poem for Dan, sorry to say, but um, for my love of frozen yogurt, which is very <laughs> true. <laughs> Both of them are true. But. Daniel. Here's the silver machine the cold mechanical cow that turns a stream of milk into the soft continuous body of the deposition winding and unwinding its idle wife hold down the lever as long as you can hold me up let the lever become a hand in your hand let go only when the white peaks and curls it is the highest form of holding still shape melted to nourishing hear the guts of the machine throbbing there is a mouth between our mouths, around the mountain of cold, sifted sugar. Your mouth, when it enters mine, is like a mouth of snow, not biting, sticking its warm, wet tongue against me. Tonight we feed each other the frozen tongue, hailing the cream, holding it in the throat like a sigh. We have swallowed too fast this sweet universe, chill clinking of bells against each taste bud, gorgeous headache, sudden attention. The sun gushes up, a liquid, anonymous light calling you out of your face. When you need it to be night, there will be my pleated blue skirt rolled six inches above the knee, waiting for you to blow it gently over my unbuttoned corners, a triangle of fact over a triangle of want. Lose me inside the elastic sadness, where the slackened waistline still creases a rim around my stomach. Incorporate your waist into the widening banner. Include your torso, your limbs, around my original axis. There is still a society of firsts where we will meet, white carriages loud encircling the cobbled center of my body. My body is so clumsy, trying to prove it is a body, trying to hold your body. Um, I'm actually inspired. I love that poem, Evening. I love the idea of putting something new in with with work of the book, so I'm going to actually read um, a new poem that is, well, it was written um, right after this book came out, and, and just before I gave birth to my son, I had sort of a crazy pregnancy uh, where I was in bed for many months, and I couldn't write at all during them, but uh, then I started entering this time where I knew this was a reality, that I was going to have this child, and I started reflecting on my own childhood, and thinking about how weird it was that I was going to have a child in a place that I never really even experienced, because most of the time I'd been here, I was sort of on bed rest. Um, so this poem came. You've been on Earth so long already. All my life, all I've wanted was to be myself and someone else. Not theirs, but them. My shame about this greed made me hesitant with other children. I wanted what they wanted, but apart. I tried to make it, spooned what I could in shallow mental dishes I stacked all night and poured through my neediest hole, which opens only for medicine or extreme misunderstanding. My teeth browned from too much thirst too late. My eyes bulged from noticing what I wasn't meant to be. There was a playground which I went to and can't take you. The first thing I did daily was look for a place to hide or flee. There were plenty of gates and wide enough trees, but I stayed off-center, just beyond the sprinkler's way. The other children played until they snacked around me. Sometimes they cried. Sometimes they looked consoled by what they couldn't have. No, not now. The boundary of things. The boundary of time. I wish this for you. Come soon to be withheld. They were so freely asking for more world. I'm going to read um, two more poems, and the next one um, is a poem that, in, in my emails with Brady beforehand, he, he pointed out as um, his favorite poem in the book, and nobody had ever said that to me. I actually forgot about this poem, and it was one of the last I snuck into the book, and I was so happy to uh, have your attention on it. Yeah, so, and actually the person who I wrote this for is here tonight, so I'm going to read it for many reasons. The Rocking and the Horse. Where did she go? 
deep in the living room touched longer in thought than in life. There are wheels on my horse, and she must be confused whether to roll or rock to escape her toyhood. If you find her, tell her not to stay in one place to be found, as they tell children who get lost. A toy is like a thought. It begs to be ridden to life, but can't beg. I am too big for her, dependent on her stillness, because it cannot break me, or rest, or mother as my thoughts do. There is abuse in thinking. We use it to achieve temporary sanctity for lives we wouldn't otherwise commit to. For all the sunsets I miss in the hall, I crack a past whip, memorizing a spell of both myselves the one I tried to be born from, becoming what I've become. And then the last one I'm going to read um, is a poem for Max that I wrote um, during his, he, he was on many trials. One of the, the first trial he was on while I was at Columbia was at the NIH in DC, and he would go up every few months to get scanned um, to see how the treatment was going, if the cancer shrunk, came back, um, et cetera. And so, it was really weird because I had only known him a couple of months at this point, but I had gone, I'd seen him every single day because of the way the program is and the intensity of working together. So it was really strange to not have him on campus anymore. And I didn't know how to be with him while he was getting these scans. And I remember going to campus that day and it was November, it was fall and all the leaves had been pretty much bare on campus. And all of a sudden this tree was full, like completely full of red foliage. And I really think it had, I mean, obviously it must not have been, but it felt like it had been bare the day before. And so I knew that this was significant, but really could not um, capture it in any way for him. I could, took a million photos and videos of the tree and didn't really work. So that night we were both up all night. He, he had to wait, you know, I think it's 12 hours, 24 hours for the results of the scan. Um, and we, we could only talk on the phone for so long about it before I just don't have anything more to say. So I wrote him this and he wrote something too. And we sent it to each other in the middle of the night and that sort of started our, our exchange. I guess there are a lot of starts to it. Not spring. When all the other trees are bare, the red tree grows. The fire of a thousand parrots cannot overcome its courage. I picture you lying in the township of your father's arms. The noose of your mouth is a way of not speaking. The floors of your eyes shiny and light-soaked. Rest finds your rib cage. It hides and seeks within the crescent lung, a sad little Mesopotamia. I will be talking to you for a long time when you wake in the felt shade, leaving what you love of what you love. Thank you. years old and 
you know, by the time that he passed away, um, I only had memories of him because I didn't still have a personal relationship with him. But um, I think that from you know that was a t that was a time in my life where um, where I was not <laughs> thinking about mortality at all. I mean um, that and that that just seemed so um, so far down the road. So to have somebody who was my own age, who I had been at one time close with, um, pass away. Um, I think that had a, it had, it's, it's certainly had an effect because I write about it a lot, but I, my, I guess my concern is, is, um, is making, is taking somehow ownership over this grief that so many people have and that belong, that I feel belongs so much more to, to so many others. Um, but at the same time, my experience of losing people has been that um, as I move through the world, I'm, I continuously talk to the dead through, um, you know, whether I'm <laughs> I, my dead dogs are buried in our front yard and every time I'm home, I, I, and I sit on the front steps and I say, what's up? Um, hope you guys found each other wherever you are. Um, so that's a continuous conversation and I think that uh, what, compels me to if to re to remember the dead in verse is to continue that conversation and to um, because it's one that I continue to have um, I also always think of um, one of the poems that I love best is uh, a poem by a poet named Marie Howe um, she has a poem at the end of her collection what the living do the poem is called what the living do and it's addressed to her dead brother and it ends um, uh, I, I you know I, I am living I remember you um, so maybe that, just that fact is enough. Um, but it's, I mean, of course, it's something that, um, you know, in, in, the, in the first section of the Spirit Papers, your, um, many of those poems are direct addresses to uh, a friend who um, is, is dying at, I mean, who I, reading the book, took to be um, Max, and in poems in later sections of the book, um, you know, you, uh, you address, um, somebody who is unborn. So reading your book, you know, of course, retrieval and grief um, play a central role. And I was sort of curious about um, what what events were going on in your life at the time you were writing the book and how they made their way yeah. into the book. Well, <clears throat> I think it dovetails really a lot with, with uh, this idea of I'm living, I remember you, I, lo I love that you quoted that line because I was living in this um, moment that also felt like I didn't really want to take ownership of these losses, that I was living in a sort of period of magical thinking, I guess, where I just decided that I was about to about to face mortality, not my own, but that sooner or later, the people close to me were going to die. Someone was, even if it was, you know, a few years away, I didn't know. And then in that moment of writing with that sort of terror um, in mind, I met Max, and it was just, um, sort of coincidental that the most sort of vibrant person I met and the deepest um, friendship I've had uh, was with someone who was facing a terminal illness who knew sort of this is the range of time he was going to have on earth and so to live in that loss with him or and not with him and have that distance all of that sort of went into um, my my desire to to write or, or the reasons I needed to write um, I think yeah I think of I think the spirit of someone else is impossible to really preserve in a poem, no matter how much you might try. That effort is important, but it's not because you actually wind up keeping that other person alive, but more because, um, well, maybe the spirit itself is. If the spirit is sort of an unknowable thing in another person, maybe the only reason it becomes, the only way it becomes manifest to us is in the way it touches our own self, which, you know, we can't necessarily, like, distill our own spirit, but we can somehow translate someone else's by the way it meets ours, something like that. And I think in that sense, it's valuable to write to another person or uh, for another person who's no longer here and conjure not their pure spirit, but the way their spirit mingles with yours. And um, in that way, I guess you could think it's more about the person who's living than about the other person, right. but it still seems like maybe even in life when that person is here, that's the only way we can really know each other. So yeah. I think that's how I live with the... 
thought that was like somebody shot in <laughs> yeah. the flesh and that. That's spirit. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think I think that that is that is the big anxiety is that the that in remembering somebody, the the thing becomes more about you than it does them. Um, and I mean, it was interesting because one of one of the one of the elegies in the in North American stadiums is um, is called "Bands You Might Have Liked If You Were Still Alive." Um, Whenever I, whenever I read that poem and say the title, people typically laugh because it seems like kind of a morbid like or accusatory thought. Like, if only you lived, you could hear this cool shit. Um, but it actually it came out of a conversation that I was that I was having with Jessica about people that we have that we have lost, and you know, years have passed, and we just we were thinking about music, and we're like, well, what you know, what would that person have liked? And I think at its best, that way they can you know. Continue to you think about it, it's an odd thing to that that all these things keep being created and uh, it was a it was just it took a hold on my mind to think what what would this person who's not around to see these things created have thought about it. Um, yeah, I think that that poem actually because that poem is such a good example of this. I think that when you talk about the sort of concern about ownership and owning someone else's grief, you do such a beautiful job in that poem where you bring in other pieces of music, other creations that that you might have enjoyed together, and then within the poem, sort of in the center of that poem, that's when you really can ask the deepest questions of Michael or, or wonder about yeah. Michael because you've couched it in these other these other creations and, and bands. And really um, I also wanted to ask you about place because this is, this is something that I have not felt in a place of any kind in any place I've lived, and you do it in so many different places throughout, which is... It's like you. I'm, I'm actually going to read a quote that from um, the Syracuse poem. What would the city say? Whole worn corridors veiled in mechanical light. The city doesn't speak. It does not pray. It does not turn into memories of the dead. Those two red beacons blinking deeply into space. Its sky is not a sound like intake. Ancient whale breathing against the ear of something small. Um, I just the vo the idea of the voice of a city and mm -hmm. what would the city say? I feel like you do this in a lot of places where you've learned you've cultivated a way of listening to a city. Where yes, you're able to write it too, but you must also have an experience of place that um, I don't know if it's more spiritual or you're just tuned into a more collective society. But what what is that about place? Is it is it a spiritual experience or is it something else? Um, that's a that's a really great great question. Um, I think that again, my I have deep ambivalence with about writing about place um, for for a variety of reasons. Um, in the the quote that you mentioned, um, the the question that begins that quote, "What would the city say?" is immediately followed by me saying. The city does not speak, it does not pray, it does not turn in the memories of the dead, these two red beacons blinking deeply into space. I turn into memories of the dead, these two red beacons deep, blinking deeply into space, which is a totally absurd thing, as it is to, in, in my mind, to um, be uh, entitled enough to think that you can speak for the city. So. I think that what <laughs> I try and get away with in some of the poems is to to speak my experience of it, but also to I hope um, in some of those, in, certainly in that poem, that I'm also turning the lens back on myself and and um, questioning questioning that impulse. Um, I do. There's a writer I love named David Means, who I was uh, I was a teacher of mine at Vassar. And um, he, I read an interview with him in which he said, he was talking about the influence of landscape on his work. Um, and he said that the landscape is part of the living soul of the people who reside in that landscape. And growing up in the Midwest, living in Chicago, um, driving through the Midwest, I have always felt that deeply, that a, 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 a almost obsessed, an obsession with the landscapes that I moved through. Um, at the same time, um, which, which often, as, as some of you know, as you definitely know from reading the book, um, 
they you know they appear frequently in my in my poems um, but I think the challenge is that these are landscapes and things I've seen that do have great meaning to me but I'm cognizant of the fact that um, the lives of the people who reside in some of those landscapes you know factories on the outside of Chicago those lives are wildly different from my own and so what I hope that some of the poems contain is some measure of self-reflection to acknowledge that um, even though I might um, celebrate them, that not you know often I am not of them, and I think that's I think that's an important thing to acknowledge. That was a really long answer, so. Um, but um, I was glad I was glad to hear you read um, the first poem you read. I believe is "Pretend," um, in which begins with two gnomes sitting yeah. in space. Um, and there was another poem you read that I think where that came about partly as a result of Lucy Brock Reuter's influence and letting more onto the page, but particularly with pretend and, and something that is so, I think, unique, is something I've not experienced in too many other people's poems are this, this melding in your work of the deeply um, bodily or corporeal um, poems that are located in physical physical pain that also manage to contain this wonderful, fantastic element, like a poem beginning with two, two gnomes like sitting in space that ends with, honey, you're somebody's home, which is like the deeply domestic, and it's, a, it's sort of miraculous that you can get from one to the other. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about um, what, who, who, is, who has shaped your work and sort of what influences you see um, from your own reading in your, in your writing? That's a really good question because I feel like that always takes me. There's like the surreal, fantastical element that would lead one to naturally think of surrealism. And I actually don't. I mean, I like. I have gone to like surrealist art exhibits, and I like the visual art. I don't love surrealist poetry, so I was like, where? Why am I doing this thing? Um, but I think that um, well, there. One one answer comes from within, which is that I think that the as I spoke about before, like the the mode that I was writing in was it was a period of time when. I, I didn't feel like I had actually had the experiences yet. I was anticipating loss. I was anticipating this unborn child, this kind of love that I didn't have yet, and fearing it and dreading it and hoping for it. So from that place, I often had certain feelings or emotions that were not commensurate to the experiences I had. So um, just because I was, you know, and I'm sure we all have this, even if we're not in a period of dread. You know, just going out to dinner, you might something might catch your eye and make you absolutely miserable or absolutely you know, optimistic that the world can be redeemed, you know, any of these feelings, and sometimes to, to just write from the experience or the thing you're observing felt not enough. Um, so what I would do is take that thing or that feeling and transform it to try to capture this interior um, space or this, this feeling, and what that would just, I guess, naturally lead me to was to create another world in which that could contain this emotion without being absurd, you know, why, okay, dinner scene shouldn't make you feel despair, you know, so that, to, to transform it or to have, you know, a bird in my mouth, just, it, it just um, is what came to me instead of, I'm looking out the window feeling like I have my voice back, you know, just, it's sort of what metaphor um, is made for, but like taken to a certain extreme because the, the experiences weren't themselves yet, um, it was all about waiting for the experiences as opposed to the ones I currently had, and I think about you know, who are my influences? So Dickinson is my, my go-to favorite all my life, and I always thought it's more about like the music and um, the way she uses the dash and just the way I felt con contained and able to contain her poems and not so much this surreal, she doesn't seem like a surrealist to me. Right. But now that I'm thinking about, this morning I was thinking about, like I felt a funeral in my brain, a lot of her posthumous poems, which are some of my favorites where she blurs life and death, there are these images where it's like, how do you capture that feeling? It's, I felt a funeral in my brain, okay. Her interior becomes floorboards that she falls through and drops down and down, hits a world at every plunge and finish knowing that. You know, that's pretty surreal. So I think that whenever we're trapped in our own minds um, and trying to capture that, we have to go to other worlds or to fantasy for certain elements, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and I, I don't see as much of a fantastical realm um, in your poems, but I do see I mean, there's a, there's a lot of talk in a lot of the reviews, and uh, and I felt this too, about the pastoral and renovating the, the American pastoral, which is a tradition in itself. James Wright, Bill Levine, 
But I also kept thinking of um, Franz Wright, who's more I don't know, psychological or maybe even meta a modern, a current metaphysical, um, more contemporary metaphysical poet to think of. And I'm just curious about the beyond human in your work, because it is more based in, there is more of a, a grit and a reality in your work, but there's still this other force, um, dragons, for example, but I know that was based in hearing a story about dragons, so it is right. tethered more. Um, but I think of, the, I just wanted to quote this one line because I feel like it's somehow in, in your book, which is a Franz Wright line from The Only Animal. Um, you, are, uh, you are given in secret one thing to perceive, the tall blue starry strangeness of being here at all. And I was like, there is starry strangeness <laughs> all over this book. So I'm just curious how you would speak to the sort of non, beyond human. Yeah, well, it's, it, it brought a smile to my face to hear you reference uh, Franz Wright. So he, so he passed away, um, for folks who don't know, in the last year and a half, I can't quite recall when, but I lo I've always loved his work. And so, um, and he's, he has a real spiritual element to, to his poetry. Um, and I think that, um, I think that there is, um, so, we were driving the other day, and uh, we were driving from Philadelphia to Jersey City, and um, some <laughs> sounds so stupid, but some birds, <laughs> as they do, uh, flew above the highway, and uh, we hadn't really been talking, but I just thought, you know, I really, I, I really hope that in 40 years, uh, the sight of something like that can still induce in me the feeling, the feeling that it does, which is like. It, I don't even know how to describe it, but it, it's like, I found it very beautiful. I found the world to be this, sound very trite, incredibly beautiful place, and um, yeah, and so I, I think that spirit, and I, prayer is something that is important to me, uh, but not prayer yes, necessarily um, yoked to religious connotation. I grew up in, a, and my father's a Quaker, um, was a Quaker and I was a Buddhist, my mother is Jewish, um, so religion was sort of always up to me, and um, I never uh, sort of moved uh, with purpose towards um, either Christianity or um, Judaism or Buddhism, but um, I, you know, one form of giving prayer is to, is to give thanks rather than, as opposed to asking for something, and that's incredibly important to me, and one way of, of, uh, of giving thanks is just to look very closely at your surroundings and where you are and to name things for what they are. Um, so if there's a spiritual element in the book, I think I want it to be that. Um, should we open up? Yeah. There? You guys got any questions? I don't know the I don't know the the Laurie Anderson piece that you're talking about, but I will I'll look it up. Part of the dog. Okay, cool. 
I don't either, but what you said about displacement, it, it's really interesting to me that she sort of displaces her grief for the lead and, and the dog. That's something that I think speaks a little bit to what Grady and I were talking about before about elegy and loss and can you own the loss of another? Can you really preserve another? And I think that displace, that act of displacing sort of speaks to what poems can do, which is not, not to capture the person or the other, but capture the experience of loss itself, which is an abstraction that sort of moves through us um, and isn't necessarily tethered to the, the body. In the same way that when we mourn, you know, we, we don't just mourn when we see a picture of the person we love or at the funeral, but it's some other thing that winds up becoming the object that contains the, all of the emotion and sets them free. That's, um, that's something I think about a lot. And I remember once when I was actually writing for Max, I felt a little uncomfortable giving him poems that were in imagining him already dead. I thought, how is he going to take this? You know, this <laughs> But it really became, <laughs> he, he made it very funny, actually, yeah, because he, he um, well, first of all, he had a great, great sense of humor, and he was like, you can write me anything as long as, as, long as I like it. <laughs> um, but uh, he, yeah, he, he often realized that a poem I wrote that I thought was for my unborn child was actually, he was like, that's actually about me. Or I'd write a poem <laughs> about him, and I'd be like, do you like this? And I'd work on this while you were going through trial, and he would be like, actually, that's about your mom, honey. You know, he really knew that this was, and, and it wasn't, he wasn't undermining what I thought the poem was about. He was actually recognizing that exact thing, which is we naturally are writing about other things than we think we're writing about them. We're displacing our emotions always, and that's part of what a poem is meant to display. I want to check this piece out. I think Lillian mentioned that there's like a privilege between the grief of the dog, and then she feels the dormancy and the firmness to see that experience. I think you're having a really fierce battle with the dog that's missing in the room, and also, Is there a, yes. so. I didn't think there was anything perfect in the Buddhist tradition, except well, being unperfect. I, you know, I mean, you know, yeah. I'm kidding, yeah, yeah. no, for sure. Yeah. Max's, Max's new 
two posthumous books just came out this month for Milkweed as well. So um, sort of a perfect conclusion to the night. This is his book of poems, The Final Voicemails. Um, and he also has a book of letters that um, are letters between him and the playwright Sarah Rule, who is a dear friend of his. Um, and it's letters and early drafts of poems and reflections. And um, I'm just going to read uh, a poem from, from the book of poems, which was uh, edited by Louise Glick, who was one of his, his mentors great, great mentors. Um, and this is the last poem in the section of poems that he wrote really late in his life, right after he had finished his first book for reincarnation. I think actually it's, it's a good poem for tonight because, uh, well, first of all, it's, it's dark, but it's also funny, um, which is nice. And it, um, it touches on some of the, the things we've, uh, we've been talking about, but Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.